Hello and welcome. This is Ron Cohen, and this is our tax update for the week of August 22nd, 2022. Things are slowing down just a little bit after last week with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, we're going to talk about today a few things. One, we're going to review the things you should do if you're closing your business which sadly happens very often. And there's a way to do it so that you don't have to worry about it years from now. And there's a way not to do it. And I've seen both. So we'll go through that. We'll uh, also give a hat tip and uh, uh, recognition to Deloitte and give you some links because now a week later from the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, if that's still its name. I, I, I heard they changed the name, but I could be wrong. Um, there's some more in-depth analysis on various areas, including the book minimum tax, the stock buyback, excise tax, the clean energy provisions, and some financial reporting considerations. So as always, Deloitte does a wonderful job summarizing those things. And we have the links in the show notes. And uh, I'm not going to drill through that. It starts to get very, very granular in detail. Uh, we covered a lot of it last week, but that resource is there for you. And uh, as always, Deloitte's write-ups are top quality. Then I'm going to dive into a little bit of a history lesson. The 16th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution affects you every minute of every day. And um, in a, in a, often in a bad way. And we're going to go through what it is and why it is and really some political finagling that backfired that ended up giving us an income tax. Might have happened later anyway, no matter what, but, but it's very interesting. The Internal Revenue Service, to their credit, has uh, a great uh, bit of website there going through uh, uh, the how things arose, what is the authority for paying over a huge chunk of your life's income to the government and how it came about politically with some twists and turns. And I learned a few things reading the IRS website. I knew a lot, but I learned a few new things and uh, I'm going to share those with you. Okay. So we're going to go through our normal uh, caveats here. Uh, we're beautiful. This is the firm of Greenstein, Rogoff, Olson and Company. Excuse me if I didn't say that earlier. We're in downtown, beautiful downtown Fremont, California. And um, our webpage is www.groco.com, G-R-O-C-O.com. Phone number is 510-797-8661. Extension 237 is my number. We have five partners. Everything's great. Feel free to call if you uh, have an opportunity where you need some tax advice or planning or so forth, call anytime. Uh, but we're going to go through here my uh, 30 minutes or so, maybe less of my self-indulgent, self-indulgent, narcissistic time with you where I get to um, give you my perspective from a tax perspective on the way the world works, which might be wrong, but it's my view of it. And it's my 30 minutes, so I get to do what I want. Take no reliance on anything you hear in this podcast, because in order to, before you do any transaction or file any tax return based on a tax position, 
If you're working with uh, our firm, you have to come in, can be through uh, Teams or Zoom or uh, over the phone, uh, sign an engagement letter, give us all the contracts involved, let us ask you a bunch of questions. We write a detailed memorandum laying out what the law is and how it works. And then only then can you rely on anything you hear or we give to you. And only then you can use it to do a transaction or file a tax return. Plagiarism is okay in this podcast because everything's from the Internal Revenue Service and code and the regulations. The Internal Revenue Service code, the Internal Revenue Code and the regulations, you know, make up something like 16,000 pages, uh, even more when you include a bunch of court cases. A lot of the court cases are the law, right? It's not specified somewhere else. So you have to know that's the court case that interprets the statute that gives you what you actually do on the forms. And then to make it even worse, the Internal Revenue Service has all kinds of internal documents, which are made available to the public, usually, uh, that are the way it works, right? Uh, when you get into a lot of these detailed nuances. Next, we're going to try to avoid general politics on a national level. Because you can listen to podcasts all day and night, hear people argue about this or that. We're going to focus on the tax law, although because it is legislation, tax law generates its own set of politics. And that I feel free to talk about because it gives you background about why our system is the way it is. Our, um, our firm does about 1,300 tax returns of all sorts for little old grandmothers all the way to high-tech executives and venture capitalists and then international corporations do a lot of planning. We do a lot of family office services for wealthy individuals with far-flung entities who need our help on a more, uh, both the tax filings, administrative, a very detailed, granular kind of helping them take care of uh, bill paying, for example, uh, for the, the right kind of family office situation. Uh, and we, we, we do that well for a number of big groups. All right. So I am no cheerleader for the, this tax system. Just want to get that right out there. Uh, while I make my living for the most part, uh, using the tax system, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, um, I'm no cheerleader for it. I think it's way overbearing. It's tedious. It's an invasion of privacy. Try to figure out one deduction for mortgage interest. You might have to go through a 12-step flowchart. It's ridiculous. There's a lot more elegant ways of doing it. Some other countries, especially in Europe, really uh, make tax filing for about 85% of the population very easy. They don't even know what a tax season is. They just sign a piece of paper and send in the money or get their refund because the government's figured it all out for. Well, we don't do that here. We have a tribal paper fest festival <laughs> every April 15th, and it's unfortunate. But that said, we always try to get an A-plus on every tax return. In the system we have, everything you send into the government is a legal document with, a, with a, uh, an affirmation, with an affidavit of sorts, a perjury statement. So every number you put on those forms and send in is, is just like telling it to a judge. That's the way you... Ought to think about it. It's just like walking into a courtroom under penalty of perjury. 
So uh, it has to be right. So always, we always try to get an A plus, not an A minus, not a B, not a C. We're not, we don't file. Well, let's just file something and see what happens. Nope, nope, we don't do that. Try to get an A plus. And as I've mentioned before, often you file really good tax returns with all the right forms filled out and all the disclosures and lots of uh, explanations on white paper statements. And what happens in the reality is pragmatically, as I described it, you can describe it, is that when they pick returns for audits, the uh, auditors, you know, they before they assign it to an auditor and send you a letter to come in and show you show a ton of information, they have a human being who actually sits down there and flips through the return. And when your return looks good and professional and clearly all the math is right and all the forms are there and lots of things are explained, they will often say, hey, this looks pretty good. Let's go bother somebody else because they're trying to triage, right? And use the right use their resources well and uh, try to pick the returns where there's a clear mistake, where they can uh, get some more money for the government. So good, nice, clean uh, looking, uh, 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 well put together, fully disclosed tax returns. That's the way to go because the best audit is the one that never comes. <laughs> you can take that to the bank. The best IRS audit is the one that never comes. Okay. So um, you can also look into Alan Olson. Uh, he has a podcast called American Dreams where he interviews a number of serial entrepreneurs who are very successful here in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. And that's uh, enjoyable. You can uh, take a look at that. Um, be linked in our show notes. Also, just put in there, Alan Olson, American Dreams, and uh, you can hear some great interviews. So our office is about 12 miles north of San Jose and 35 miles south of San Francisco. I gave you the phone number. It's in the show notes. Call anytime. I usually talk with people for free for 10, 15 minutes, uh, maybe even more, just uh, probably more than I should, <laughs> just trying to help people and sort out whether we can have a good professional relationship and help you with your taxes. So, okay, with that out of the way, the big introduction, let me go through a few things in terms of uh, the IRS it has a nice uh, site that they just recently put up. In fact, they put it up on August 10th. So it's really nice because um, I get this question all the time, you know, hey, it didn't work out. We're shutting down our business. What do we, what do we have to do? Well, it's, it's, you know, it's complicated. So, uh, uh, of course you, you would know you want to try to sell off all your inventory. Um, you want to, you want to make sure that you file your final tax returns and related forms. The type of uh, return to file and related form depends on the type of business. Could be a C-Corp return, which is 1120. Could be a partnership. Could be a Schedule C that goes into your 1040 for a sole proprietorship. Could be a, a California, have the LLC form 568. Could be other things. But um, so many people, you know, because when businesses shut down, they're in trouble, right? Things didn't work out. They don't have any time or money, and they certainly don't want to pay a bunch of accounting fees to get things wrapped up. Well, that's a big mistake because uh, you want to make sure the final returns are filed, and there's a little tiny box right on the top of the forms, uh, just below your name, says, is this a you know, final return? Check the box, final return. You can barely find the box, right? You would think nothing of it. Oh, that's cute. Well, no, it's really important because when the return's either paper filed or electronically filed, 
All that gets key punched in. And that tells the great big computer in the sky up there at the IRS and the Franchise Tax Board here in California, Har Income Tax Authority, and of course, any state tax authority that you happen to be filing with, that tells them that's it. We're done. It's over. So don't look for a return next year. So if you file a return and don't mark it final, eventually you'll get a letter saying, well, how come you didn't file the next year's return? You say, well, we went out of business. Well, didn't mark the return final. So stupid little box, but very, very important because it switches off the computer. And then there's certain when you have a liquidation, uh, redemption, merger, whatever, there's all kinds of statements that need to be on the return to clearly describe the transaction and uh, inform the tax authority, you know, how did this entity wrap up? How did it end? Uh, now, let me say Besides just the Internal Revenue Service, more importantly, even you want to make sure you've got it wrapped up with the Secretary of State. Uh, if you have a corporation or a, a partnership that's a LLC, whatever, uh, uh, you can file your final tax return, but until you dissolve it or or cancel it or swap it, there's about three, four different ways to get rid of the legal entity, unless that is duly, rightly, appropriately. Uh, uh, filed with the Secretary of State of the state in which you do business, um, your entity's not dead. You are not out of business. Now, you may not be doing any transactions, but um, you have an entity that still has a filing requirement. So you have to kill the entity with the Secretary of State. Now, that's legal work. I have to be very careful. I'm just a CPA, right? We do tax work. And we know how to do some of these things and tell people what to do, but but dealing with the Secretary of State is a legal filing. And you generally want your attorney, or you can do it yourself if it's very simple. California's done a great job of making it pretty straightforward to kill off an LLC, kill off a C-Corp uh, legally, right? But you really want to do that because the Secretary of State will keep writing you every year. Hey, how's that corporation doing? Who's who's the directors? Pay us a little fee for the information statement. Anything change, right? You say, well, what do you mean? I, I, I filed my income tax return and I said it was my final return. Well, the Secretary of State doesn't read that. You have to file with the Secretary of State and dissolve your entity. So I hope that's helpful because I've seen so many people mess that up. In California, the Franchise Tax Board says, well, you owe an $800 minimum tax for various C-Corps and S-Corps and LLC. And until you've dissolved your entity, dissolved, merged, somehow transferred your entity with the California Secretary of State, you owe $800 a year. And I have gotten phone calls by from people who said, well, I stopped using that LLC and I might have told the uh, tax authority that it was dissolved. Uh, but I never filed anything with the Secretary of State. And the Franchise Tax Board comes back and says, look, you didn't kill the entity, so you owe $800 for the last 10 years. So now you owe $8,000. And then you owe twelve dollars or $15,000 because of the interest and penalties. And so uh, when you want to dissolve an entity and end it, really, really end it, it's good to work with a lawyer, it's good to work with a CPA, check all the boxes, final attach all the final statements about dissolution, merger, uh, any the, however it was wrapped up. And please make sure that's done good because literally these things can come back to haunt you 10 years later.
pay taxes owed. Okay, well, you know, uh, the, just because your business didn't work, unless you file bankruptcy and go through some other procedures, which I won't get into, that's a long story, you got to pay all your final taxes to wrap this up. Report payments to contract workers, right? So your company is shut down. You still got W-2s to file, 941s for payroll every three months. You have uh, 1099s to file for independent contractors. It all has to be done, even though you've closed your business. Then um, um, uh, generally, you cancel your uh, federal employer identification number and close your IRS business account. Businesses Business owners should notify the IRS so they can close the IRS business account. So uh, generally, if you file a return of market final, that should be it. Sometimes, though, the enterprise is so big, we write a separate letter to the IRS and the Franchise Tax Board and just say, here's a copy of the first page of the return. Please note we marked it final. Please note it's dissolved. Please turn off the employer identification number. It seems tedious, but it really helps. And if anything goes wrong, it's good to have that stuff in your file so that you can say, look, I told you, I told you. Why are you writing me letters asking for returns for the subsequent years when I clearly followed all your rules and told you I'm gone? The entity is gone. Keeping business records. Well, you know, so you file a return. Well, that return is still subject to audit for three years after you file it in the IRS and four years for California's Franchise Tax Board. And you have an absolute duty to keep all your records. You can't just say, well, I went out of business, destroy everything, put it in the shredder. No, 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 no. And there's this thing called um, successor liability. So when a corporation, a partnership, an entity, a trust dissolves, the, uh, the, 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 the shareholders, or the beneficiaries or the partners who got all the assets when everything dissolved, if there were any, and even if there weren't any, they, they take on the successor liability for any tax audits that might come up. So with statute of limitation, again, three years after filing for federal, unless there's fraud or there's a big misstatement, uh, four years for California, you must keep your records. And we always tell entities, you know, we keep corporate records for like 10 years. Uh, any, any kind of enterprise that we work on, uh, we, we keep them, we keep, I shouldn't say that. It says nine, 10 years. Uh, and we always give all the records, originals that we receive back to the client. And we tell him, you must keep this. Uh, while we have scanned it in and have a copy, you must keep the originals. Because uh, something could come up down the line. So I hope that's helpful. Again, uh, you got to get yourself sorted out with the Secretary of State so that they mark in the state records that that entity is gone. LLC, C Corp, S Corp, many other types of entities. And because the federal system basically keys off the state and says, well, if, if you, you aren't dissolved under the state law, then you're, you have to keep filing returns. Now, some people will write me and say, there are exceptions where you have absolutely no activity. Okay, you had a de facto liquidation. That's right. There's some things, but I, you want everything in this area to be crystal clear. Dissolve with the Secretary of State, file the final returns, mark the returns final, have all the appropriate statements, close your bank accounts, keep all your records, file all your payroll returns, 
kill off the employer identification number and get on with your life. So I hope that's helpful. That's um, a little uh, very useful thing that is in uh, on the uh, IRS website, and rightly so, because it is a question that always comes up quite often. All right. So um, just to mention again, seeing the show notes that the light went and uh, did some more research on the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act and has, uh, you heard me uh, last week talk a good bit about, you know, if your enterprise is over a billion dollars a year in income, uh, there's a book minimum tax that's brand new. It's come into play 15% of um, of uh, gap SEC income with some modifications, with some modifications. And uh, you can click on one of the links uh, we'll have in the show notes so you can start if this affects you. Um, you can start having your tax guys at your corporation and your MBAs there working for you, try to crunch out the numbers to see how bad it's going to be. Uh, more detailed information on the stock buyback excise tax. Did a whole 20 minutes about buy stock buybacks last week. And I do want to make a correction. Last week, I thought, why were there stock buybacks, right? We talked about how um, they were illegal for decades because it's basically a manipulation of the stock price for the management of the company to go out and buy shares out of the market. Now there's less shares in the market. Mathematically, the price could go up, but should go up, but it doesn't always. And the management has an incentive to do this because guess what? They get bonuses for making the stop stock price go up. So that's a little bit of an abuse. But anyway, there's about $800 billion a year of stock buybacks over the last five years here in the U.S., and I talked at length about it is really kind of an, a manipulation of the market, but the uh, the political powers that be said, well, they're not great. Uh, there is some argument that uh, they're not really, that they're overpricing stocks, but putting all that aside and instead of stopping stock buybacks in large part, not all, there's some good reason to have some, but instead of stopping them, there, of course, they decided better to tax them. So, uh, now there's a 1% excise tax starting in 2022 on uh, the value of the excise tax. And like anything else, you've got to walk through a long list of of uh, 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 rules about how to determine what is taxable, pay, pay, get that money in. There'll be forms that will come out, right? Like everything else, it becomes a long 15-page flowchart. There's more details on clean energy tax provision. There's more details on financial reporting considerations for various other uh, wide range of things in the Inflation Reduction uh, Act. Okay. But that's not this week. That was last week. Just, uh, you know, as a, when a tax bill gets passed, uh, <laughs> uh, quoting Speaker Nancy Pelosi, we have to pass the bill so that we know what's in it. <laughs> And I'm trying so hard to bite my tongue and not get into politics, but that's absolutely true. There's, you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of pages. And then you read the, the raw law in the code and you say, nobody understands what that means. And then the regulations will come out sometimes years later, but quickly after the bill is passed, there's a write-up. So uh, it's called the blue book that comes from the joint committee taxation uh, some of the authors of the bills get involved and say, well, this is what we meant. Even though the words are complicated, this is what we really meant. So go forward, 
start paying your taxes and know that this is the way to interpret the very convoluted and complex language that's often passed in the Internal Revenue Code. So uh, Deloitte has done that with all the other firms and has uh, put together some uh, a good bit of um, guidance. That's what we're all looking for. Guide. So what I want to say, sorry, uh, I, that uh, what I wanted to say was that uh, stock buybacks, the the main reason uh, that they were put in there was for it's an anti-dilution device, right? So the simple case, you have a thousand shares of stock for your company on the public market. Now, of course, that's totally wrong. There'd be way, way, way more shares, but uh, let's just thousand shares. And then through employee stock options or some other things going on with the company, all of a sudden you have 1,300 shares of stock on the, uh, out there in the public. Well, if you were one of the people who bought the first group of 1,000 shares, you've been diluted out. The value of your shares mathematically has gone down by 30%, right? Because uh, there's now 30, it's actually a little off. I'm a little off, but it's a, there's now 1,300 shares out in the world where you owned one 1,000th before. Uh, before the dilution happened. So that's why the Reagan administration approved some a limited amount of stock buybacks, which, as I said last week, is now turned into drive a truck through this thing. Companies, uh, different political forces came into play, different interpretations by the Securities and Exchange Commission resulted in now um, you can <laughs> largely do what you want with a stock buyback, and that is buyback as much as you want so that you're not only trying to counteract any dilution that has happened as a result of normal stock option issuances, but you're actually truly trying to attack and reduce the number of total outstanding shares with the intent of making the price per share higher for each share. And again, classic definition of stock manipulation, which is why it was illegal for, for, for many, many decades. And um, so rather than outlaw it, they, I know I'm repeating, but they, they, they decided let's tax it. Yes. <laughs> so there you go. All right. Uh, if you have any interest in that, uh, I've now put in the show notes more than enough information. There's some wonderful articles in Forbes magazine. Just put in stock buybacks. Several authors, excuse me, I don't have the name, but they went through the entire history of it and why it is and what are the SEC rules that allow it. And with the overall comment of, you know, this really isn't good. This isn't something that should have evolved into what it is, but it is what it is. And you can write your congressman if you don't like it. Okay. So uh, moving on here, I now want to get from uh, the micro to the very, very, very uh, macro go into the U.S. Constitution and the 16th Amendment of the Constitution. Again, the hat tip credit to the Internal Revenue Service, who we have the, the links in the show notes, uh, has done a pretty good job. Well, I should say it's an excellent job trying to explain to normal human beings how the tax law, this beast, this absolute convoluted monster that we deal with, got to be the way it was because when the founding fathers started the country, they absolutely had the view that there should be no income tax. You can run a country based on import-export customs duties. 
maybe a few transactional taxes. Uh, and, uh, of course, the revolution started in part uh, with a protest over tea because, because the British were taxing the tea that was being imported to the United States. And a bunch of uh, revolutionaries went onto the ship in Boston Harbor and threw all the tea into the harbor, protesting that better the tea be ruined than their liberty be taken by ex extorting from the U.S. people uh, this tea tax, which was passed without their agreement or representation, taxation without representation. So there was absolutely a feeling, a desire, a need, a, a complete agreement that there should be no income taxes uh, when the country started. Maybe if there's a war, they might consider it, but on a day-to-day -day basis, completely different from how it's been normalized in our everyday life, uh, American life included no income taxes. So I'll just start going through this. Again, uh, it's on the IRS website, and then we can talk about how uh, the conservative groups got bamboozled again because they were trying to avoid an income tax. And they uh, I'll just read it. I don't want to give away the uh, punchline. All right, so far-reaching in its social as well as economic impact, the income tax amendment of the 16th Amendment, which brought us the income tax, we'll talk about that more in a bit, became part of the Constitution by a circuitous series of events accumulating in a bit of political maneuvering that went awry. So first, take that sentence in. This, this 16th Amendment basically takes from you 30 to 40% of all the earnings you will ever have. And it was created through some political ploys that went awry. The financial requirements of the Civil War prompted the uh, American in first American income tax in 1861. At first, Cong Congress placed a flat 3% tax on all incomes over $800. And of course, that was a lot of money back then, and later modified this principle to include a graduated, graduated tax rate. Congress repealed the income tax in 1872, but the concept did not disappear. So now listen, listen, take this in. <laughs> it's, it's such so surprising the way of normal life today. There was a war, it was a terrible war, civil war. Of course, not going to get into all the reasons and who did what, why, and who was right and wrong. But there was a war. They added a tax, and when the war was over, they took the tax away. They repealed it. Unthinkable, unthinkable in the modern world. After the Civil War, the growing industrial and financial markets of the eastern United States generally prospered. The South had a tough time, right? The, the farmers of the South and the West suffered from low prices for their farm products while they were forced to pay high prices for manufactured goods made by the eastern, uh, eastern northeastern states. Throughout the, 19th, the 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s, farmers formed such political organizations as the Grange, the Greenback Party, the National Farmers Alliance, and the People's Populist Party. All of these groups advocated for many reforms. Interstate Commerce Act, uh, considered uh, radical for the times, included including a graduated income tax. 
1894, as part of the high tariff bill, now remember, tariffs are import duties, export duties, not income taxes. Congress added a 2% income tax for incomes over $4,000, which was a whole lot of money. Nobody, very, shouldn't say nobody, almost nobody made $4,000 a year. Very small portion of the population would be subject to any of that income tax. The tax was almost immediately struck down by a five to four decision in the Supreme Court, even the court, even though the court had upheld its constitutionality of the Civil War tax as recently as 1881. So again, just get the chain of events. In war, the Supreme Court said, yes, you can have an income tax because we're at war. But after war, no, no, an income tax was unconstitutional. When you have something that's unconstitutional, the only way to make it constitutional is to have an amendment to the Constitution. Although farm organizations denounced the court's decision to take away the income tax as a prime example of an alliance of government and business against farmers, and the whole point was there, there they wanted to see the rich Northeast be taxed, and then some of that money spent to help the farmers in the South and the West. That's why they, why they were going in that direction. A general return of prosperity around the turn of the century softened the demand for reform. Democratic Party platforms under the leadership of the three-time presidential candidate, William Jennings Bryant. You can go look at all the videos you want. He's a very famous figure. However, consistently included an income tax plank and the progressive wing of the Republican Party also espoused the concept. In 1909, progressives in Congress again attached a provision for an income tax to, the tar to a tariff bill. And here it is. Right? So here we are, 1776, brief period during the Civil War, tax was repealed, 1776 to 1909, no income tax in the United States. But in 1909, the conservatives, hoping to kill the idea for good, proposed a constitutional amendment enacting such a tax. They believed an amendment would, would never, never receive the three-fourths of the state ratification, that it would need to become an amendment to the Constitution. Much to their surprise, the amendment was ratified by one state legislature after another, and on February 25th, 1913, with the certification of Secretary of State Philander C. Knox, the 16th Amendment took effect. Yet in 1913, due to generous exemptions and deductions, less than 1% of the population paid income tax at a rate of only 1% of net income. Now, digest that. They passed the income tax. And the view was, oh, we'll have an income tax of 1% or 2%, small amount. It won't be me, the normal person who pays it. It will be the very, 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 very rich, very rich, who will pay the income tax. And that was the premise under which the 16th Amendment is passed. And I just point out as a student of history that that has absolutely nothing to do with the situation today. So the premise on which this amendment was passed, you can say whether it was needed or whether it was not needed, it simply is in a completely different historical context from where we find ourselves today. 
This document settled the constitutional question of how to tax income and, in doing so, affected dynamic changes in American life. Yeah, 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 right, right. So let's get into uh, exactly how it worked a little bit. Uh, again, uh, <laughs> the conservatives put in the, uh, the constitutional amendment, assuming that it wouldn't get ratified by enough states. Oops, you made a political mistake. It got passed by enough states. And it was in a world of 1% tax rates. Oops, that's no longer the case. And here we are where we are. Right, so uh, as I was saying, the Constitutional Amendment, 16th Amendment, was passed in a world with the expectation of a 1% rate on really, really rich people. Uh, part of what the IRS mentioned was there was a 7% rate at some point, but it was, it was small. I mean, it was clearly not on the regular middle class folks. And now the world has morphed, right? Now everyone, uh, uh, with the exception of low-income people, it's often quoted that something like 40-50% of the U.S. population does not pay any income tax. They just pay Social Security and Medicare tax. Okay, that's usually kids, uh, people just starting out in life, whatever. Most of us were paying 30-40%, sometimes more, sometimes a lot more of income tax. So if you take the argument, well, wait a minute, the original amendment was passed to affect only very rich people and only at low rates. So the amendment should have no effect in a modern world. Well, no, no, because the mechanism in our constitution says you can always amend it. So you could amend the amendment. So if there was a real political push to say, well, let's get rid of the income tax or put a top rate in the amendment, it could be done. You just have to do the process all over again, pass the amendment in Congress, send it out to the states, have it ratified by uh, three-fourths of the state of the states, and then you would have an amendment to the amendment. So I just want to make clear, while I think the original amendment has no context in modern life, the reason it's still fully empowered law is because the people of the United States have not ro rose up and passed an amendment to an amendment. So since they didn't amend it, then however the mechanism works is still the law, and we pay and pay and pay. There's some famous words if you're a tax nerd like myself and study this stuff. Uh, the, the 16th Amendment of the Constitution is about one paragraph, and it gives the authority to tax income from whatever source derived. Income from whatever source derived. And I think it's interesting to look at this in kind of reverse because there are a great number of tax protesters and people who still argue that the 16th Amendment uh, didn't give the government authority to tax income, even with the words tax income from whatever source derived. So, as I say, it's interesting to look at the objections to these words. People have gone to jail for misinterpreting them often. Usually you end up doing about six months at a jail in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Tax protesters say income is not adequately defined. And on an English basis, they kind of have a point is that it's, it's deemed to be understood. But when you, uh, when you look at it from a legal standpoint, any serious research of the issue undoubtedly lands with the clear legal interpretation that it is defined 
in reverse intensely. The, the authors wrote about this and they said, well, we can't tell you what every kind of income might be. So we're only going to say it's all taxable unless we tell you it's not taxable. So it's defined in reverse. That is that uh, all income is taxable unless we, the Internal Revenue Code specifically has a provision that says it is not. So under our system of taxation, where it says uh, 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 th this, you must pay tax on all income from whatever source derived, unless we tell you it's not taxable. Well, must means must. I tell young associates that when you see the word must in anything related to the IRS, it absolutely means must. No fa fuzzy interpretations are allowed. And I'm emphasizing this because there are, there are many people and books have been written about people who misinterpreted must and any source derived as income and uh, ended up ruining their life. So I compare that to when, you're, you were, uh, when your parents told you as a child, hey, be good. We're, we're going out to dinner. You know, uh, dog's okay. They're fed, but you be good, right? You're, you're not a toddler. You're uh, old enough to be on your own. But your parents said, be good. Now you knew what good meant. So you know what income is. I have more money. I either worked for it or I sold something or I spent an inheritance. You know what income is. You, you know what income is. So saying income is not taxable is kind of a low IQ attractive argument. It's very attractive. So oh, they, they didn't define it. They didn't pass it right. <clears throat> There's some issues about, well, it was a, there weren't enough people on the floor of the Senate when they passed the bill. There's all, there's some arguments, but I tell people, and I run into them from time to time. These are tax protesters and I've known of them, never my clients, never my professional clients who really sent to tax returns, really that said income is not defined and therefore non-taxable. And therefore I'm not paying you any tax. And they signed the tax return and send it into the service center. And books have been written about how to do this. There's a precise, very thoughtful way of how to protest your taxes. But if you're going to take that position that income is not adequately defined, you're also taking the position that the federal court system is invalid because the courts have endlessly backed up the Treasury Department and the Internal Revenue Service on what income is. Income is from whatever source derived, unless you can find an exclusion in the law. So arguing you don't have income, therefore becomes defined as a frivolous argument. And I'm not just trying to you know, throw out flowery words. These have legal implications. Uh, frivolous argument that is contrary to the full power of the federal courts, because there's, there's hundreds of cases where people have tried arguing everything under the sun about why the federal government doesn't have the, the authority to tax you. And I must tell you, in terms of court interpretations, it is simply not true. The, I, the IRS and the Department of Treasury do have the right under the power of the 16th Amendment to tax you. If you don't think that's true, well, then you're basically violating the Constitution. Now, a lot of people say, well, I, I want to violate all kinds of things in the Constitution. Okay, that's great. 
just know that's the box you're in, right? The legal box you're in, and judges don't generally like that. <laughs> so you're taking a frivolous position. Frivolous positions can get a, a substantial penalty uh, if you, uh, a very large fine. And if you keep saying it and keep not paying, even after being informed by the government that your position was frivolous when you sent in that return that said, I'm not paying tax on any income because income is not defined, it can lead to imprisonment. Then, once identified as a tax protester by the IRS, you may get audited for year after year after year after year until they become convinced that you're voluntarily compliant once again. So don't go down that path. A few people I know who did, and I've known about three, who would, would sit and talk to me and tell me for an hour why I'm all wrong. And all three got into various seri very serious trouble, very serious trouble. Believe me, uh, I don't like much being told some to be voluntarily compliant. I don't like it, but this is not the area where you want to push back in life. If you really believe it, file your tax returns and pay your taxes and sue the Internal Revenue Service in federal court for a refund of your taxes. Because you'll make a pleading before a judge saying that, hey, income's not defined. But I'm not remotely, remotely recommending that. I am not recommending that. But this is what people do, as you are surely going to lose and spend a lot of money to lose. Further, you will likely not find an attorney to represent you because attorneys are not allowed, since they are officers of the court, to make crazy, clearly incorrect, frivolous pleadings. Does that waste the court's time? And then the attorney gets yelled at by the judge and can be fined or disbarred. So you're not going to find a lawyer to pick up the case. That income is not properly defined. So you won't find a good lawyer and you'll be making what's called a pro se pleading, which means you're doing it yourself. It's a do-it-yourself program. And that is a whole nother can of worms because walking into a courtroom and following courtroom procedures, filing a pro se filing is very, very difficult. You'll get it wrong. The judge will yell at you for getting it wrong. Judge will yell at you for not getting a lawyer. Then you'll tell the lawyer, I couldn't, the judge, I couldn't find any lawyers because I'm arguing that income is not income. And the judge will yell at you again saying, that's right. You're wasting a whole lot of taxpayer money and time. You may disagree with that. Okay. You're entitled to your opinion. Doesn't make it true under the way the court system works. Further, I'm not an attorney, so I'm not telling anybody what to do in any of this. And if you visited my office and asked if I would help with a case to argue income is not defined and therefore not taxable, while I have some intellectual curiosity and I dislike the inflationary actions of the Federal Reserve Bank and the tax laws created to fund it, I would politely say no and walk you to the front door to leave in a real desire to not be associated with you in this court case, court case you're going to pursue in any way. I don't know you. We never talked. Please leave my office. I, you might be a very nice person, but taking the position that the interpretation, your interpretation of the 16th Amendment is contrary to the, the interpretation of the Internal Revenue Service, Department of Treasury, and all the federal courts, ain't going to be something I, 
I want to get involved with. But it's interesting to think about. Okay. I've even called into a radio show once. I'm not going to mention the station. It was years ago. And uh, the comeback from one of the people being interviewed who was espousing this position was said, well, of course you'll say that. You're a CPA. You make a living off of complying with the system. Uh, I've really been told that more than once. My response is simply, no, not true. And I've had over 30 years experience, so I can see in my mind's eye, I can see the three or four year battle that you're about to enter into when you send in those forms and the investigations and perhaps the subpoenas. And if you don't give up the possible incarceration and I can see how it's going to end up. So I pray for you if you do it and don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And there's no charge for my advice in that. Don't do it. Free advice. <laughs> So to potential tax protesters, there are many battles to fight in life. This is one that is objectively incorrect, technically, and not remotely winnable. Unless you want to overthrow the whole government and everything, and then God bless you, that's where you're going, but I'm not going there with you. So when you see all those YouTube videos, and there's plenty of about how income is not defined and therefore not taxable, you can listen, smile, have a beer. And get back to finishing your tax returns because it ain't going to work. Uh, so those are my observations on the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution enacted in 1913. Literally my entire career results from that one paragraph amendment. Washington, President Washington, never wanted to see an income tax on individuals. He viewed it as contrary to the American way of life and a disincentive for people to work hard and make good of themselves. President Calvin Coolidge reduced taxes in the national debt in the 1920s. Can you imagine such a thing where the tax rates go down significantly and the national debt also went down significantly? Can you imagine such a thing? Even through World War II, only the very wealthy paid any significant income tax. Now, the, So, for example, in 1913, the top rate was 7% on all income over 500000 which is $11 million of income today. I mean, it's an incredibly small amount of people were subject to it. And the lowest bracket was 1%. However, for the very wealthy during war, tax rates become absolutely oppressive. In 1944, the tax top rate peaked at 94% on taxable income over $200,000, which was like making $2.5 million today. Now, uh, there's few of us uh, alive. I wasn't there, right? There are few people alive during World War II, but there was, there was a situation where people, you woke up in the morning and said, gee, I wonder if my country is going to survive. I wonder if I'm going to be bombed. I wonder if my, you know, it's like, this is, this is, this is the big one, right? This is for all the potatoes. This is for, for all, this is for everything. So uh, wealthy people were expected to help pay in large part for society. Then after World War II, with the Cold War and massive expansion of the federal government, the tax system exploded for everyone. And you can see, and one of the links here I have, about how the tax system has grown and grown and grown and grown. So for you lovers uh, of the play Hamilton, uh, the hip hop play, right? There was a scene in there 
where there was a great controversy between Alexander Hamilton and Madison about do we have a national bank and how do we fund it? And should we have a tax? And it was good because uh, I, I liked it. I listened. I, there it is. That's exactly right. Because we went from, 19, from 1776 to 1913, with the exception of a minor tax uh, during the Civil War, with no income tax. The government relied on excise taxes on gas and alcohol and import duties to run the government. No more. No more. After the War of 1812, uh, so, so you heard earlier that one time after the Civil War, taxes were gone. Gone. No more income taxes. Other taxes on alcohol, uh, uh, gasoline, uh, to the extent it even existed at that time, and on uh, import-export duties. After the War of 1812, on December 23rd, 1817, which was after the U.S. won the war against Britain, Congress repealed these and all remaining internal taxes and abolished the position of the Commissioner of the Internal Revenue and all offices to collect them. Can you imagine such a thing? Tomorrow morning, all of the, the, the top guy, the Commissioner at the Internal Revenue Service, is looking for a job and all of its offices are closed. Nope, we're past that. We're past that. They really repealed the federal income tax. Yes, hard to imagine. The 16th Amendment of the Constitution impacts all of us financially every single day. A piece of paper signed by old guys in 1913. Modern economies need a tax system, no question about it. The endless question is on what income and at what rate. It is central and ongoing political issue about how much is too much or too little. Well, at least now you know this is how it started with the 16th Amendment in 1913. You w uh, would, would the world be better off without a federal income tax or at least a much lower one? Would the world be better off with a much higher income tax and more services provided by the federal government? Would war have been avoided without its funding? Or is it more required to protect the peace? Why does the U.S. constantly spend 25% more in some years, a lot more, than the taxes it takes in? These are all good questions. I try to avoid politics, but uh, I'm just reviewing the history. And again, that this all spawned from the 16th Amendment in our country. So, all right, um, those are the things I wanted to cover this week. Again, I'm Ron Cohen, tax partner at Greenstein Rogoff Olson & Company. Uh, we're firm in beautiful downtown Fremont, California. Feel free to give us a call. We'll always uh, like to chat. And uh, we will see you next week. Thank you. <laughs>